Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, I will be speaking with my co-host Richard after a very long hiatus on my part. And for those of you who listened to the last episode, you will know why. Um, But we are back in business and talking today. We're going to hash it out a little bit about some news items and personal feelings about what's going on with the left, perhaps in the U.S., but also elsewhere, Um, and kind of just shoot the SHIT on anything that we feel like uh, over the next few minutes. So come on and join us. Welcome. How's it going, Richard? All right. Still kicking. Still here. (laughs) I laugh because we had a very long conversation prior to this, like starting this call. We were just like, yeah, America is a hot mess or like U.S. is a hot mess um, on so many fronts, but in ways that affect us personally and I'm sure affect many of you all. So it's always I, I used to feel like, you know, when I would ask, like, how are you? It was like a like a just like being polite thing, right? Like, you know, you just ask like, oh, hey, how you doing, right? Um, but now every time I say how, hi, how you doing? I like regret it because I feel bad. <laughs> like I shouldn't be asking. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I I know how a lot of people are doing and they're not doing great. I should just be like, how can I support you? I feel like that's the, but instead of saying, hi, how are you doing? I should say like, hi, how can I support you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Like, how are you doing? You may be dealing with somebody having an emotional breakdown in the next few minutes. Just because <laughs> it, it, yes. It's hard out there. It, 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 like, and there's doesn't seem to be a lot of light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of folks. And so like, even just getting the opportunity to express how, you know, down in the dirt you feel can be the, 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 a light for somebody because we're, we're all in this kind of desperation state, I think, in many Mm -hmm. ways. It's true. I mean, like a few months ago, um, I talked to one of my advisors after like a really long time of not having uh, made a peep on my end, just because I've been so overwhelmed and busy and trying to like, manage all of this um and you know she asked me like hi how are you and I just I literally broke down in tears (laughs) I'm laughing but it's not funny you know it's not funny it's just absurd but like just the words how are you right now are are triggering kind of you know like it's it's rough and I think yeah it's in in ways that I never thought I would be quite at um but it is what it is. So yeah, like I said, I think I'm going to I like in this moment, I'm realizing that maybe instead of saying, how are you? I should say, how, how, as I said, how can I support you? What do you need help with? You know, like, what can I do to maybe just help a little bit or something, you know? Um, what do you need? Right. Is maybe a better, better way of framing things. Um, So today, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about some items in the news and things that are going on that are like top of mind for us. Um, Richard, I'm actually going to let you have the floor first and kind of introduce some any anything that's on your mind that you wanted to talk about. um, And then we can go from there. Oh, I guess one of the things that's been caught my attention recently and uh, well, I thought it might be lighter, but I can already see how it could turn (laughs) to even also dark, but uh, 
uh, the AI stuff and like what that means for uh, the future of work, for the future of humanity, for the future of business, for the future, for like uh, everyone's future really. And like uh, how that's affecting what we see as what we need to do to uh, to make that future not uh, miserable, you know? Mm. And so like, uh, there's been more recently was the chat GPT, but before that was uh, like Dolly, which was the art version. Chat GPT is kind of a customer service type platform. Uh, but I think there's a lot of potential there. And I guess one of the things that came to my mind that I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about is uh, obviously we know that the training of AI or machine learning is kind of uh, a broader term that is probably more accurate in many cases because when people think of AI, they think of more what people in AI refer to as AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, something that mm. would be more human-like versus machine learning, which takes data and can learn from it and then uh, make uh, decisions about how to react to similar looking data in the future and moving forward. And so like how that data, how AI is trained has a lot to do with what kind of results it produces. And we've seen in the early stages of AI, some of those uh, pull out. And one of the big ones was that there was a biased data set for facial recognition that resulted in some facial recognition apps like classifying uh, black people as monkeys, for example. And so like uh, the learning process for AI can is limited by the the data that's put into it and so one of the things that like for instance uh chat gpt one of the points that they make is it doesn't have access it itself doesn't have access to the internet so it can't look things up uh, outside of its assigned data set and one of the reasons is because as soon as you let ai learn from the internet it learns all of the most atrocious things that we convince <laughs> ourselves aren't really a major part of humanity or have been shoved, have been pushed down or that we've we've matured beyond so on and so forth. All those kind of narratives fall mm -hmm. apart when you when uh, an, a, a machine takes the data that we produce and interprets it. It consistently results in showing that our society is racist, sexist, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean I agree with that. I I think. I'm not as, um, I guess I would say I haven't been keeping up with it as much as you, but I have been seeing a lot of stuff recently about art and AI um, and a lot of like understandably very upset artists. And I've been thinking of it very much around the question of labor, right? And how we think mm -hmm. about labor and um, ways that like AI could potentially be helpful, but also really harmful, um, especially to people who are doing independent kind of work. Um, that doesn't necessarily allow for formal unionization or for um, worker protections in the same way that we would think of in a more formal sense. Um, but even then in the U.S., like even formal labor is not protected well by unions. Um, so issue for another day. Um, but I, I think there's been, you know, like on the one hand, I think that AI could be really helpful for um, in medicine, for example, in health and medicine for basic things, um, but obviously nothing that could replace having an actual doctor or, you know, NP or someone working with you. Um, and I think it's really dangerous to try to put everything onto AI. Um, I also think that there's, I think what you raised about the the screen, or sorry, not screen learning, but like the surveillance state and its use of AI and how things are being 
misidentified or people are being misidentified in the process, um, particularly around like, um, like face readings and whatnot, right? Um, and I think there's some questions to be asked about what that means for security, especially, especially for leftists and people of color and leftists of color. Um, because one of the things I remember that it was happening in the past was not just the like classification of black people as monkeys, but also a frequent case of misrecognition of black people or like misidentification of people of color in general, not just black people, but like non-white people, right. Who were being mistakenly categorized as other people or as suspects, right? And you're like, oh my God, what does that introduce? Um, and I even think about like basic things like when I get a speeding ticket that's that's because of like a camera that took a picture on the expressway. But I've noticed that like the mon we have so in Baltimore we have all these monitors that like show you the speed that you're going on certain um expressways. So shout out to folks in Baltimore who ever have to take I-83 and know what I'm talking about. Um but they <laughs> huh we no, just have similar thing. We have oh, a similar do? thing. Have I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I know the the like looking down at my speedometer to make sure that um that traffic isn't leading me into destruction. <laughs> yeah, on, and like if they're wrong sometimes though, so that's what's really scary. And that's why I'm like, what do you do? Like if you get because I I got a speeding ticket and then I was like, um, the reason that I so there so this I, this is a very short story i promise guys but basically the area where they have a lot of the cameras set up is like when it's transferring between the county and the city so in, in the county you can go like 70 miles an hour it's no problem but then and once you get to the city you're not supposed to go over 50 like in the for this particular expressway so obviously there's a 20 mile an hour difference between city and county and there's a line there and right at that line they have a camera <laughs> so your car cannot decelerate 20 miles in an instant quite like that. So if you don't realize that the border's coming up, which I didn't at the time, you can't like decelerate fast enough to not get a ticket, you know, and they do that on purpose. Um, but it's the other thing too, is like when you're trying to go around someone, right? Like if you're going in the fast lane and you're going fast just to go around someone so that, you know, you know what I mean? Like you're not going... Mm -hmm you're not going fast because you want to go fast. You're going fast to go, to, to go around and then you're going to go back to your normal speed. But like, they also catch people doing that. But what I've noticed is that the monitors sometimes are wrong, like by several miles an hour. Um, and it could make a difference. Like if it's not properly identifying what the car speed is, and then you're getting a ticket for it, that's a problem. You know what I mean? And while it's better than dealing with a real live cop sometimes, because depending on your race or your gender or whatever, how you look, it may mean death for you um, or the cop that you get that day. You know, it's all so there's so many factors that are like re relative to that particular moment that are very, very dangerous. But at the same time, it's like if you're someone who's poor and you're getting a bunch of tickets because the monitors messed up and then you're you're then also forced to go to court um, if you want to dispute it, you can't dispute it in any other way but in person, and then you have to pay court fees and all this. You know what I mean? Like, there's no guarantee you're going to win. It's just dangerous on all fronts from not only a financial perspective, but also just like thinking about COVID. Then you got to get childcare. Then you got to get off work that day and blah, blah. Like, it's not easy and that's on purpose. And so in thinking about AI and thinking about like machines in general doing things for us um, and assessing situations, there are benefits, but also obviously I'm, I'm more, I think, you know, maybe there's like a slight bit of like Luddite tendencies that I have, but <laughs> I just, I don't know. It, the, it, 
it doesn't seem like it would be a good idea on many fronts. And I know for sure, like when we think about the kind of devolution or regression of social media and stuff like that, things that were once promised to be the future, the quote unquote future, or like to innovate or to change society. And that ended up really hurting us and like really hurting young people in particular. I'm less and less hopeful about the potential that it may have um, and certainly more concerned about the dangers that it poses. Well, it's funny is uh, Luddites get a bad rap, uh, like, <laughs> yeah. but like really like they're like, you're very right in that you're just being skeptical of what the, the dangers that the new technology pre present, not that you're opposed to the new technology because it's a new technology, which is what people tend to associate that with. And it's mm -hmm. like, that, that's that's the indoctrination propaganda of Western capitalism. <laughs> exactly. Like they're <laughs> criticizing the system, not the not the technology, right? Like it's, it's the use of that technology in a hyper-capitalist system. Like this is, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it, it reminds me also of like, if you're doing any sort of art or like creative writing and you're asked to look at an object, but everyone's looking at the object from a different perspective, right? So like, you know what I'm talking about, right? When they have those like drawing classes or writing classes and you're supposed to describe or draw what you see and everyone, depending on their angle in the room is going to come away from it with a different result. And so like when it comes to technology i think of technology as like that object but depending on your perspective in the room like you're going to be coming away with some very different <laughs> ways of thinking about that technology and i know mm. for sure like in a capitalist system and and like a this is like almost one in the same here but saying it almost feels redundant to say but like a very racist and sexist and homophobic and whatever capitalist system it's not going to be anything that's going to be to our benefit it's going to be to the benefit of the hyper wealthy and you know the the power systems that keep poor people where they still are you know yeah your mention of perspective just made me think of that new mlk statue that was, yeah. uh, i don't know if you saw that but that i have has, seen I, it unfortunate yeah so i have i have mixed feelings about it because i i've been kind of following it but that's a really that's an important thing to bring up especially considering tomorrow is martin luther king day um uh, so I don't know. I'm just saying right now I'm admitting ignorance, but I've seen like blips and bits and pieces of headlines. And I know that the artist said that it has to do with an embrace between Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King. Yeah, and there's so, like a photo. That yeah. So probably, apparently like yeah. it's not as bad, I guess, as people think it is. But I don't know the contract. Like, did people just think it was ugly or like what was why were people so up in arms about it? And sorry, uh, that's my child in the background to wishing me happy birthday. It's not my birthday, but she likes to tell me happy. She likes to come into my room and sing happy birthday, everyone. So I don't want to. Happy birthday, mama. Oh, so cute. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye, Miss Selena. Okay, let her go to sleep. Bye, sweetie. Thank you. I'm glad you had fun singing happy birthday. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> that was an interlude from my child. She just woke up from a nap, so she wanted to come and say hi and happy birthday, apparently. Um, anyway, sorry about that. So you were saying, my apologies. Uh, no, no problem. Uh, about the MLK statue is basically, 
what happened is that depending on the angle, the perspective that you're looking at it from, uh, on one angle, you can kind of, you can much more clearly see that it, what it is like to people, although they are headless for uh, inexplicable reasons, like what <laughs> yeah. I to me anyway uh but then from a different angle it just looks like uh hands holding either like a giant turd or mm. the piece of male anatomy like it, it the, depending on what mm. angle you're looking at it it like it dramatically and it was just it was like nine million dollars or something and so like uh, it was like I didn't mean to get distracted, but I just couldn't help to think about it. And I guess no, I but like, I, that's fair, so like, and it's timely. <laughs> yeah, like it, 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 I think it is kind of symbolic uh, in in the sense of representing the the empty symbolism of mm. embracing King's legacy versus actually materially making the changes in people's lives that uh, King's dreams were about. Yeah, definitely. That's fair. And I, I, like I said, I haven't been following the controversy of just seeing, seeing things kind of flash by me and I hadn't seen it at those weird angles, but I guess that was intentional, right? Like they probably didn't want to stick it in the headlines if it looks indecent or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> like they didn't want it as the feature picture, I should say not the headline, but the featured image. Um, but, you know, just one real quick thing, like in terms of theory, like when there was a book that I read, um, called Terms of Inclusion. It's about Black Brazilian, like intellectual stuff. Um, intellectual stuff, that sounds really flat. What I mean to say is like Black <laughs> Brazilian intellectuals and thought, there's a better way to put it. Um, and at one point she talks about this statue that's done, that's made, that's supposed to be in honor of like Black people and specifically Black women. Um, and in it, there's like a really interesting footnote um, where she talks about how, uh, you know, like, historically speaking and just like thinking about um you know the way memorialism and stuff like that works or memorializing and the way it works it often operates as a way to like kind of silence and forget the figures that are supposed to be honored right so it's like ironic because you would think to yourself okay like they're creating a memorial in honor of this person or these group of this group of people right but at the end of the day and like um Oh my gosh, Ana Araujo has also talked quite frequently about this, who's another, she's a Brazilianist scholar, and she writes about slavery and things like that. Um, but basically what ends up happening is like the, the person that's being memorialized, the memorial itself becomes indicative of like the symbol, and that's the end-all be-all of that person. So it ends up becoming important if and only when the society or like the people at the top have decided that they're not going to talk about that thing anymore. Right. Um, and so you see this, even when you think about like COVID or like other memorials that are done, people who have died in wars and all this stuff, it's done basically as a, as kind of like, well, this is it. This is all you get, <laughs> you know, like we're going to, we're going to create, we're going to spend money on, you're going to spend your money on creating this thing. And then this image in, in place of actually talking about the the sort of real impact of the thing or person that's being memorialized, right? Um, and it's a way, it's ironically, despite it being a physical symbol of remembering, it ends up being a signal to the public to forget and to basically see that activity or that person or, you know, that moment in history 
as something that is settled. Um, so yeah, basically like as you're memorializing that thing, the society or the government is signaling to the public that it's done, it's over with, it's closed, it's resolved. And there's no need to do anything beyond just remember the object, like to see, or not even to remember, but to see the object as a symbol for that thing or person or movement. And that's it. If that makes sense. I hope I made sense here, but um, they're not necessarily always good. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I think it, it clues us in a bit to perhaps some of the motivation or the the reasoning or whatever behind not having the heads or faces on the statue or absolutely like, yeah because it, it it continues to uh, water down mlk to just love people and love somebody else like it's like that's a loving embrace between him and his wife and it's like uh, on the tail like there's a story behind it that means something but to anybody that just sees the statue if they don't have like a static image memory of that image and even then that might be a stretch and then and or read the plaque they're gonna have no idea other than maybe if they can they get it from the angle where it actually looks like an embrace oh hugging is important okay (laughs) (laughs) that's the takeaway and so like i I think that the that statue is and your just your description line up incredibly well i did want to get back onto ai just for a moment oh sure yeah like uh like the algorithms we people know it it heavily influences what they see on their social media on youtube or whatever but there's also uh it's also happening uh behind the scenes or in front of the scenes whatever uh regarding inmates and uh people that are being adjudicated on and so like one of the things that they're using ai for one they're not legally supposed to be doing it is actually for sentencing so they'll plug in the the defendant's data into the algorithm and the algorithm will tell them the probability or likelihood of reoffending or whatever and then they'll make a decision based on that now they're not supposed to be making sentencing judgments based on that but right it, it clearly is and then they actually are in some cases making specifically parole decisions and uh, and um, those types of uh, release decisions based around an ai algorithm and so the point that you were raising earlier about that these systems get it wrong also co- t- like uh, coincides with something else that I've been noticing recently. It's just people's willingness or like necessity in order to keep to survive or keep a job so they can survive of just doing whatever the system, the computer, the boss just says. Like I just that's the rule this is what mm-hmm. I have to do. And so it's like if we have algorithms that are telling us in, in increasingly parts of our lives saying this is what this is the situation and this is the appropriate response. I don't think we've, uh, it's particularly in the U.S. as a population, are prepared for the kind of critical thinking and uh, intro- introspection and like observation required to make sure that we're not just blindly following something that's telling us to do things that we don't even actually want. <laughs> and that's like how we're trained through life, right? Like if you think about school, I mean, the way school operates um, now is pretty much just to memorize and to regurgitate whatever you see and half the data, or, you know, when I say data, I mean like information that you get is inaccurate. People are working with old books or teachers who are not properly informed or schools that are not properly informed or that are deeply conservative or whatever, fill in the blank, you know, they have, but I think we're being taught like from, from the beginning it, you know, you sit in your chair and you learn. I mean, we talked, you and I talked about this with Freire too, right? When we read Freire and mm-hmm. he mentions that as well. Um, how the way we are taught to learn is often 
it doesn't apply to real life. It's not flexible. It doesn't, it doesn't have us engaging in a real way or thinking in a, in, with any depth, you know, um, and having critical thinking involved. It's, and, and I think that that, that that just translates into the workforce. Right. And especially now, like considering that people are so dependent upon labor, um, if they can keep it, you know, if you can keep a job, if amid all the health issues that people are having because of COVID and other long-term issues, because they haven't had access to healthcare because they couldn't afford it, you know, so you do things, you do whatever you can to, to keep on to the job that you, or keep on the job that you have, even if it's something that's harming you. And, and like, when I say harming you, I mean like blatantly harming you, right? Like right now people are going into workplaces that are biohazards in ways that we've never quite had, except I guess during the the previous pandemics, you know? Um, so it's kind of, it's wild to me that like we're, we're meant to just accept these things. And then I guess so that the question becomes, you know, what's the alternative, right? Like we have unions, but the unions are busy, you know, rolling over for the, for whatever government is in power. Um, they don't really push back against many governments and when they do they get crushed pretty quickly um so you know it, it can it can be really I, I guess I empathize and understand um why people sometimes are just being they're going along with it and it's unfortunate like you said that it's all now being or a lot of it's being kind of rolled into this machine learning or AI systems that don't have any flexibility or that it don't allow for any real challenges um I did have a question too. Going, I'm going back. It's my fault. I'm like all over the place. But um, I was curious because when you talked about the MLK statue, I started also thinking about that like weird Biggie Smalls statue in Brooklyn, which I don't know if you've seen, but it like it it was done by a black artist actually. I don't know much about him, um, but it's in like you know gentrified Brooklyn, and you ask yourself certain questions about like what is who who listens like the people in that area who live there now who are like predominantly white and wealthy or like upper middle class you know when they listen to biggie smalls it's like for fun or for a party or whatever but like people who are growing up in bedsty or like in the local in in the area because i don't think the statue is actually in bedsty but people who are growing up in that general area and vicinity you know like who lived through the time that he was rapping and who were like his peers um, are all being like priced out of their homes or forced out of New York altogether. And then now there's a memorial to him where, where they once were, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of, it's, and this is off, it comes up a lot too with like indigenous remembrance and stuff as well, where like they'll have, they would, it, it's like a, a thing that would happen quite a bit in some Latin American countries because they had a whole movement that was like basically white, Europeans kind of like pretending to be indigenous um, and or people who were mestizo who had like one one great 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 grandparent who was indigenous and then they kind of they like build their whole personality around being indigenous when they weren't like that person really wasn't an indigenous person it was a person for all intents and purposes was living life and had lived life for generations as a European and had the benefits that came with that um and so it, long story short, like these people were, you know, like creating statues and having like all these shows and performances and things like that, that were like supposed to be in honor of like their indigenous heritage. But then at the same time, you know, advocating for the removal of indigenous people and further marginalization of indigenous people from their land and things like that. And like it disempowering them, you know? Um, and so in some ways I, I guess my question too about the 
MLK statue is like, where is it located? And what is the background of the artist? Um, because I sometimes wonder with like the Biggie Smalls statue, is that artist also trying to, to actually make the point that I'm making? Or does it matter because is the long-term effects like the same thing that I'm talking about? Or is the artist, like, does the artist's perspective in this case matter? Um, or does their background matter if the, like, the subsequent effects are the opposite? And I guess then that does still connect back to AI, though, because, like, AI, when intended to do one thing, doesn't really matter what the motivations or the intentions are of the creator of these systems, because at the end of the day, it ends up doing like the opposite of what the system may have been created to fight against, right? Like bias or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. If you happen to know any additional information on this. Um, I'm, uh, don't have too much on the, the Biggie statue. Uh, like uh, I, I, no, not I, that I, one. I'm I, sorry. The, yeah, the MLK yeah, statue. MLK. Oh, the MLK. MLK um, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, as far as, uh, I'm sorry, like, I'm not sure the, the question regarding the MLK. Sorry. Just so I'll make sure I answer the question. Oh, no worries. Because I was rambly. I got <laughs> went into this whole thing. Um, what I mean is like, is the, so I guess the questions are, to be clear, is the ML, who is the artist for the MLK statue? Like, what's their background? Like, are they... Gotcha a person of color? Are they black? Are they white? Mixed? Whatever. Like, how do they identify? And then also, what kind of neighborhood is it in? Because if I recall correctly, it's in like a kind of like a touristy normal, like, like just a normal touristy area, but I could be wrong. So because as I said, I was like missing a lot of the information, even though I kept seeing it like flashing across my screen, but I hadn't had a chance to really read into it yet. Um I myself also haven't uh, haven't gotten too far into it. I just like it just sprung to my mind because of the perspective aspect of it uh, and the unfortunate uh, that unfortunate aspect of how it came off to people people that were standing at the wrong angle essentially. <laughs> as far as the uh, too deep into the actual statue, I, I I have very limited. I would be remiss to say that I could articulate further on that. All right. So what I'm going to do, I'm literally, I never do this because I'm a professional, <laughs> but I am going to, I'm, this is all being said in tongue in cheek sorts of ways, by the way, for anyone who may be unclear, I'm making fun of myself. Um, I do have generally a policy where I'm like not on my phone or my computer while we're having these conversations, but now I am curious because I think we should know these things. But then again, like I said, does it matter? Right? Like if the, if the final result generates this kind of conversation where we're asking what the heck is the intention of this artist and is he or she or they modeling like trying to water down MLK's history with this is that the message right then that in and of itself is the problem right it's not so much what the artist's intention was as it is the effects right like the final or the multiple results that there are um okay so this is in Philadelphia right if I'm yes. not mistaken. Um, let me see. Okay, y'all literally hear me looking this up on my phone. This is this is like a left POC history happening right now. Um, okay, so is it in Phil? It's like, okay, Google is garbage right now. I can't believe this. Um, it's not even looking like, okay, y'all, I'm serious. I put in MLK Memorial Philadelphia and it's pulling up all this stuff about like the memorial in DC. Because okay, Google Boston. is broken. 
It says Boston is what I'm Boston. Okay, Boston, Philadelphia, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and now everyone, <laughs> everyone who subscribes to this podcast who is from Boston or Philadelphia has decided no longer to subscribe. Sorry, we'll miss you guys. Um... A lot of people getting very angry in very thick accents. <laughs> Either Philadelphia oh, or Boston. Oh, we are about to get canceled. Um, okay. <laughs> No, yeah. Um, but you know, the good thing is like at least we're not being racist, we're just anti-Boston. Like, I think that's a lot of people. I think there are people in Boston who are anti-Boston, so it's all right. That so that adds another layer to it because like when I think about Boston, I immediately think of racism. So when you think, yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, about no. racism and I think about like the American quote unquote American Revolution and like um <laughs> I'm sorry, Bostonites. Our Bostonians, see, I don't even know what they're called. This is how bad it is. <laughs> I'm like Bostonites, Bostonians. My bad, you guys. I'm so sorry. Um, our our... <laughs> eastern half of the United States. I, I, I've been there since I was a young, 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 like father <laughs> child. So. All right. So I, let me see. I'm going to look on the Today Show page because I know that's going to be like super poppy and like mainstream, right? So they're not going to get too deep into it, but they probably will tell us the name of the uh oh no that's just a video they're gonna i need to find out the name in the background of this person who made this sculpture um okay washington post let's try that one if there's not a paywall yep there's a paywall <laughs> oh my goodness guys i think it's a sign that i don't need to learn any more about this all right let me see i'm gonna try one more website okay nbc news because i know they don't have a paywall so let's see. It says here that, okay, the person who did it is named Hank Willis Thompson. He was a, he's a conceptual artist and his piece was chosen out of about 125 artists and architects or his application was chosen um, among all these people to, uh, to do this. And then, okay, let me see. I can imagine it's also particularly tough for a lot of artists like that are just out there trying to make a living right. that you get presented with something like this, a commission work for something that could be career establishing or making or whatever. Mm. And even if you like, you like battle making that battle, you know, it's like, do I, do I create something that is likely to be selected so that I can get paid so that I can continue to work and live and so on and so forth? Or do I, do what I think would be the most, uh, the best possible option or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if I know it'll never get made because of my, that choice. Right. And then I won't get paid. And then I got to worry about how I'm going to put food on the table next week. And so like, right. the, like it, it uh, and we all like have to struggle with these very few people, I think, and uh, that I'm aware of are able to find work where they don't feel like going to work is helping to move the capitalist machine along. Right. Like he has, and, and yeah, it puts them in weird positions. They have to survive, as you said, but then also like, it's also sad because you may actually have, as it seems with a lot of his art, including this one, like a really deep meaning behind it, but you can't piss off too many people. Um, you can't be too controversial, but then even if you are being like, you know what I'm saying? Even if you are being controversial, people may misinterpret your intent. Exactly. Yep. And um, it seems like he, as I said, I'm, as I'm reading this, he has a, he has a background where he's done a lot of stuff about race and racism. It seems he's, he did a, a statue about 
um, South African miners. He did a statue about, um, it says unity in downtown Brooklyn, where an athlete is pointing up towards the sky. Um, so, okay. So, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to literally read again. This is left POC history. I've never done this before in any episode. So you guys are hearing it first. This is from an NBC news article about this Boston, Boston. Um, (laughs) yes, I'm still making fun of Boston, Boston statue. Um, okay. It says here, the sculpture quote, the sculpture sits in the same spot where 1965, where in 1965, King led 20,000 people in the Northeast's first march of the civil rights era to protest segregation in schools. Um, all right, this is all about Martin Luther King. Where's the info about the artist? Um, okay, there's stuff about previous sculptures. Okay, here we go. He says that taking in the sculpture, the artist said, is meant to be interactive as visitors can walk inside in inside it, sorry, and quote, be in the heart of their embrace. Like all of this is really beautiful. You know, it's a shame that the execution was kind of not what, and and it makes you wonder too, like, did he look at it in these different angles? Did he not see that it, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's hard to be critical of your own art sometimes, right? Although some of us are overly critical of our art, but or whatever we're producing, I'm just, yeah, I have lots of questions. I have a lot of questions. And while you're, let me see, I'm going to try one more thing. I just want to see if I can get any info about him because there's nothing, oddly, there's nothing in this whole article that's about him and like his history. Like how does he connect personally to this, if at all? Hank Willis Thompson or Thomas, sorry. now I'm messing up his name too. Everyone in Boston, everyone in (laughs) Philadelphia and Hank, Willis Thomas is going to be mad at me. So that's unfortunate. (laughs) Um, Okay. So he, it says here that he was born in 1976 in New Jersey to Hank Thomas, a jazz musician and Deborah Willis, an artist, photographer, curator, and educator. He went to Duke Ellington school of the arts and is a museum studies student. Again, I don't, uh, see and like now i'm gonna people who know that probably know this guy personally are gonna like be mad at me um okay he has two screen prints in 2013 that express the erasure of past injustices to the black male body um by printing photographs of humiliations or executions of black men on retro reflective vinyl which is commonly used for street signs um, and rendering them invisible except under flash photography. Oh, that's like, that's fucking cool. You know what I'm saying? These sorts of, like, when you read about the work that he did, it sounds amazing. He's done a lot of stuff criticizing police brutality and violence in particular against Black people um, and Black men. I mean. I guess he's also behind the uh, giant uh, Afro pick in Philadelphia, so. <laughs> Is he? Uh, yeah. Oh. I mean, I so just again, me taking a guess, I'm assuming that he's black or biracial. Yeah. That's um you know, I thought I saw a picture, but now I really now I can't I can't even find a picture of this dude. It's like a mystery. Everything's a mystery about 
Mr. Hank here, but I would assume, I mean, again, I'm just connecting some dots here. Now, maybe I could be wrong. I'm more than happy to be willing to be wrong here, but based on all the context clues, (laughs) if someone said, guess this person's racial background, and again, not that race is super relevant here, but I'm just curious. And I think that from what I've read, yeah, he's a black guy. And from what I've read about his work, he seems like really with it. You know, I don't like, I definitely don't think that when he created this art, that his intent was for it to erase the significance of King's impact. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's unfortunate that it seems like that's, that's been, the way it's getting interpreted in some instances because it from what i see about his background and what he has done art wise it seems like it's not at all what he's going for i don't know i'm sorry to have taken this as deep as i have but i was really wondering like i'm curious you know like what's going on here um and his wife is also in art she's a curator it says at the whitney She's from Zimbabwe. No, um, I think it's it, it, it also I think one of the points that you raised that's also important that ties also back to the AI aspect of it is just that like when you with art, you know, once you make it, you have your interpretation of what you're creating, but then it goes out into the world and right. other people are free to interpret it and interact with it. And that doesn't always reflect what you intended. And that's just the nature of art. And with AI, one of the things, like, I've been listening to several different AI developers and, like, what they're talking about, and the the common term that they use is called the alignment problem, which is that your AI, whether your AI is doing what you wanted it to do. And, like, the there's several layers to that problem, but one of the layers, like, one of the things that they say is that, like, if we set up, if we create an AGI or the, which is like the advanced form of AI, or essentially if we're able to pawn off our decision-making to AI, we have to make sure that we design it to make the, to do what we want. Otherwise, because mm-hmm. AI is going to do what it's designed to do. Right. And the problem is, is that we can't articulate what we want. So the AI, like, uh, it would be as if the artist created the statue without being art to articulate what they intended to be able to, for people to be able to pull away from it at all in the first place. So it yeah. leaves it even more wildly open to interpretation and uh, leaves you in a situation in AI's case where if you've handed over the decision-making process to this AI thing and it's making decisions based off of uh, the mistaken notions of what we desire or what we need or what what it will continue our survival and uh, 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 thriving. It, if we mess that up, there is no going back and fixing it. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's too late. Like that, that will be how things end. Like you, you won't be able to go back into the machine and fix it. There's a, a book from the early 1900s that I think uh, people would be interested in uh, called the machine stops. And it's uh, less than a hundred pages, I think. So it's not too tough of a read, but it, it very, uh, I don't know, uh, it does a good job of kind of predicting a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in. Sometimes it's almost like identical to what's happening. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's more of an artistic interpretation. And again, it was early 1900s. So right. this is before computer technology, but it 
it was really any really much of anything but they basically incorporate that into this future and uh i won't spoil it but like it <laughs> it, 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 it it captures this problem in an artistic way that i think people will find fascinating and interesting to read so i just, I just thought of that so i thought i'd mention it yeah, I've heard of this book before and I've never read it, but I've definitely heard it's like very, very good and apt for our current times. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think I even mentioned like that there's that interpretation problem and that's parallel to AI. But I agree too that the finality of it all, right, is what makes it kind of scary and I and and the inability to correct on the outside. I think there's some AI that's supposed to be able to like self-correct. Um depending on what it is, but again, like things that are, that are being used in law, quote unquote, law enforcement and policing, it'll be too late to self-correct. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're not just talking about a, a thing that's going to like make some fake paintings. We're talking about life or death decision-making. Um, that's going to be already happening to, to a degree. Like, right. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. In, in like, so like, that's the thing is like, we, it, it's, people think of AI as like this far off thing. It's like, it's in your pocket. It's right. how your photo, it's how you're when you're taking a picture, it's mm-hmm. how it focuses, it's how it finds, it finds faces. And all the, those are all different layers of machine learning and AI that are all happening constantly. Like and right. your, your GPS is using AI to help better uh, give you directions and so forth. Like all it's already all over the place. And we have, we've integrated it into our lives without even thinking about it. And one of the things that comes to my mind is there's an episode of The Office where it was the early days of GPS and Michael Scott's following the GPS and it leads <laughs> him to drive into a lake. And it's like, that, <laughs> that's where we're heading is like, if people don't like, if we're not far more conscious, because even the, the eth- most ethical scientists in the AI field, I, when I listen to them, it's terrifying yeah. <laughs> like, because of how, seemingly powerless they are to actually address it and yet they're still just moving forward with the technology without having uh, any sort of real solution for the core problem of the alignment and what does that remind you of because it certainly reminds me of another science related problem that we're dealing with right now which is covid um no one's like (laughs) the people who are in charge don't seem to have a clue what to do i mean there are things that they can do that could help but like a lot of people really don't, to be honest, don't know what's going on and don't seem to care about coming up with solutions and instead are just trying to find ways to like satiate capital as long as they can until I guess we all die. Like, I don't know what the, the end game is. Yeah, I mentioned um, it in our pre-conversation <laughs> about like, it, it boils down to like a reasonable and rational response to COVID and capitalism are just not compatible. They're mutually mm-hmm. exclusive. You're going to have one or the other. And like, obviously uh, the U S capitalist hegemony is going to choose capitalism and, and right. force that on the rest of the world. And, and so like we're seeing the most ethical scientists among us try to navigate this space, but they're being, you know, demolished at every turn. Mm-hmm. And drowned out by people who are willing to take a buck over human lives, you know, um, who are like, pushing out misinfo or, you know, lying about the data that we do have and trying to minimize the effects or not the effects, but like minimize the impact, uh, at least in a rhetorical sense that it will have on the general general population to actually encourage them to take steps to further protect themselves or their children or whatever. Um, and instead to just like lull people into denial indifference to death and mass death on that, on top of that. Right. Um, yeah, and I just think, you know, we've I've I've talked about this at length elsewhere and in articles, in in my tweets and stuff, you know, so like everyone knows where I stand on this, but 
I just think it's really mind blowing that there hasn't been more of an effort made by the left, um, you know, like as loosely as you want to define that, whether you mean Democrats, which I don't, but uh, let's say, let's, let's include Democrats for a moment in that anyone who's not a Republican, um, it's shocking to see that there has not been more of an effort made by those with power uh, in a formal sense, and especially by those without formal power, but who identify as leftists to really push for more change or to it even enact, um, you know, protocols and things to keep each other safe in their own personal lives. Like it's it's wild to me that people who are disabled or who are high risk or who have kids or like based, I mean, literally like any COVID infection can make you high risk. So just, let's just say everybody, because I don't want to make this about a disabled versus non-disabled thing. Like anyone can be disabled by way of COVID infection um, or and or no, be dealing with chronic disease. Hmm? Only my only minority group anybody can join at any time. <laughs> yeah, it's like quite literally. Yeah. And so it's it's really something to see people in so-called leftist spaces, so-called radical spaces, you know, going on trips with no mask and having rallies with no mask and having indoor meetings and activities that are explicitly segregationist um, in the sense that it excludes anyone who's trying not to get COVID, you know, like, because again, I I know that there's an element, it's a clear, clear element that's ableist as well, that is exclusionary to people who are disabled, who have chronic illness and the like. That's obvious. But I think the less obvious and less discussed um, is the way that it excludes any and everyone who is, regardless of their ability level um, and, and health, if they want to not get this virus um, or get it again or again, you know, fill in the blank. I know people who have been reinfected multiple times and they're still doing their very best to avoid it, but they can't because of their workplace or because of the circumstances that they're in where they need family or schools or whatever to help with children that they have. Like this country and many other countries, but especially the United States is putting people in impossible situations that to the point where they can't avoid infection no matter what they do. And they're not offering any support, whether it's material in terms of keeping people home and paying them to stay home, or if it's support in terms of masking, I mean, testing, fill in the blank. Like instead of, I, I say fill in the blank a lot, but I apologize. Um, it's a tick I apparently have, um, like a repeat language sort of thing. But I just, it's so frustrating and I, it's clearly a labor issue. And I don't think uh, there's just such mass delusion that the left doesn't want to address it. And it's horrifying and terrifying. And it's like, okay, well, if you guys aren't willing to do the very freaking bare bones, basic ass thing to put on a mask and require masks at your meetings or your rallies, or like have a flippant air purifier in the corner, I don't know, do a, do a virtual meeting instead of an in-person meeting or have a hybrid meeting, which is very easy to do. If you're not willing to do that, which is like, so easy, then how are you, how, like, I know you're not going to have my back when the real shit breaks out. I mean, and technically the pandemic is the real shit, you know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the pandemic, but like much like when the best way I think about this is like, you know, you have these like hardcore preppers on the Republican end and they're like, okay, you know, like when, when the government tries to take over, uh, take our rights and take our guns, we're going to be armed to the teeth and we're going to be ready and this and that. And then like, those people didn't want to wear masks when the pandemic hit. So it was like a real like apocalyptic event. Um, and they were like screaming about how masks are, are not working and whatever. So like the, the way those people drop their 
football when it came down to actual, like an actual government is not doing their jobs and they're letting people die and they're forcing a disease onto people and they're not like, you know, they're actually oppressing people, right? Like in a way that you think would be a trigger for someone who's a prepper like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like real zombie time now. And if they don't know how to respond. So like for the left, for me, I saw it as a parallel because it's like, you see this moment where capital is just taking full advantage of people. They're forcing them back to work while they're sick. They're forcing parents back to work when they have children at home that cannot be in school because schools are deeply unsafe and they're forcing teachers back to into unsafe work environments. And like, I mean, there's, it's like, it's like literally something that a historic left figure would have used as an example in his or her book of like capitalist overreach, right? Like the, the examples are right there in your face. The government refuses to pay for PPE. The government refu- is privatizing all the health response to COVID now. The government is defunding hospitals. Nurses are on strike left and right because they're not being give, giving ad- given being given adequate pay or adequate time and they're being forced to go to work sick. Like, what's it good? Like, this is it, guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. This is the moment. This is the time. Like, this is where you need to be organizing and making gains and like pushing back and screaming till your lungs pop about this happen like what's happening right now and no it's as if it's just being met with radio silence and i feel like you know once biden became president whether they were liberals or leftists or like you know when i say leftists like i'm talking about the farthest reaches of communism you could possibly imagine all these MFers went back to brunch. Everybody went back to brunch. And this is a moment where you cannot be at freaking brunch. You need to be doing something. And so it's been really eye-opening to me for all this talk about how we're anti-government and anti-imperialism and anti-this and anti-that. And we're abolitionists and we believe in equal rights and blah, blah, blah. And then you're holding these indoor events where nobody's wearing a mask. And poor people who are dying disproportionately of COVID are catching COVID from your little events that you, where you're talking about how much you care about the working class. Like, give me a fucking break. And I'm sorry, like, sorry for my language folks, but I'm really like, I'm done. You know, like I'm, I'm tired of this, seeing all the hypocrisy Um, and you know, it's not right. And, but anyway, this is the time. And it, it also reminds me too of like, you know, I remember when, like Black Lives Matter stuff was really popping off. And like now we we can have a separate discussion about issues of Black Lives Matter as a movement. But in general terms, um, you know, when you're looking at like Fergus, the Ferguson revolts and like the the stuff that was going down in Baltimore and all of that. And then Black people, for the most part, especially young Black people in this country, we were like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like we need to do something. We need to send our support. We need to go to these rallies. We need to do this. We need to do that. And then it was like white friends of ours were just, it was like crickets. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're like, why aren't they Mm -hmm. saying anything about this? They're like, they're not tweeting anything. They don't, they're not like talking about it amongst us. They're not, they're not reading any art. It's just, it was like, we were all in separate worlds, you know? And I think now with COVID, I'm getting that same kind of vibe where it's like, a lot of disabled people and chronically ill people are, have been screaming at the top of their lungs, which they've been doing forever. But like, especially now with COVID saying like, please stop causing this, this pandemic to get worse. Like, stop it. You know, like 
CDC, do your jobs. Government, do your jobs. Like everyday people in our lives, please wear a mask. Like please test before you like so many things that, that, that can be done and that people are choosing not to do. And it feels like, again, we're living in separate worlds. And in this case, quite literally people are because there are people who can't even, you know, like you can't even go to the hospital or go to the doctor's office safely anymore because of COVID and the way it's been let to run loose, you know, like if you have a chronic illness, you can't. I was just going to say, thankfully, it's one of the few places where they still require masking, at least locally but, for me. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're lucky then, because in a lot of places, they either have dropped masks or they don't enforce it. So that's like one of the problems I've seen whenever I go to the hospital. Because um, like a lot of my, so the doctors, like the hospital that I go to has a lot of my doctors in it because it's like a, within walking distance of my house. Okay. So I go to this doctor's, I go like a lot of my doctor's office offices, sorry, are inside of a hospital, if that makes sense. My Mm. daughter's pediatrician is inside of a hospital. So I have to go inside of a hospital and I will sit in a pediatrics office in a hospital and the receptionist doesn't have her mask on. The patient's parents sometimes have their masks around their nose, under their chin, whatever else. It's like, they're little kids in here, you know, like some of whom are too young to even wear a mask. They're like six months old. And Y'all are not wearing masks and they just, people don't care. They don't, because they've been lied to and told that little kids don't get COVID or if they get COVID, it's not that bad. None of which is is true. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't know what the long-term effects are. And yet people are acting like, like that's fine. You know, and we're, we're looking at potential mass, like we're, we're talking about like a mass, definitely a mass disabling event, but potentially a mass extinction event. Like I'm, again, I'm sorry to laugh, but what the F, you know, like, how are we not, I guess I'm just confused, like how people are not connecting these dots that are very, very clear about labor rights. And I'm seeing people lose their jobs because they're too disabled to work or people lose their jobs because they refuse to go into an unsafe, unsafe work environment. They're asked to work from home and they're being refused that right despite they're already being disabled or chronically ill or having had kids or whatever. Like, you know, we talk often about like um, like maternity leave or paternity leave, right? Where people should have the right to to be at home with with their kid for a little bit. You know, you just popped out a baby and like maybe you want to take care of it for a little bit, God forbid. Uh, and women or parents in general being forced back into to work before they can even like meet their kid. And so I'm sitting here like, if we can understand that, why can't we understand that like, being forced back to work after a critical illness is maybe not the best idea. Like maybe you should be afforded the right to stay home for a little bit and recover and like get actual healthcare and like maybe see what's going on with you instead of being forced back into work at the, at like, which was a decision literally based on a Delta, a former Delta CEO, like, or for, I don't know if he was even former, but um, definitely a Delta CEO. How can you, see that as okay if you're a leftist right like am i missing something am i missing something help me please <laughs> you know it's hard, like hard to say one of the things that comes to my mind is i recently was uh watching uh kwame Torre give a speech at uh at university i don't remember which one off the top of my head but one of the phrases that he said and it turns out it was also the title of his post posthumous autobiography uh, was ready for revolution and he's like he said he said i'm ready for revolution and i thought about it and i was like 
do I do I think I'm ready for revolution? Nobody is ready right no. now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, 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 that was the assessment that I, that I arrived at. Is that no, no, I'm not ready, and no one is ready. Like like the you mentioned the the uprisings around Black Lives Matter and such, and like that's one example. And we see like in COVID, uh, we've seen similar example in that people aren't ready for a revolutionary moment. So even if no. like tomorrow there was the ideal perfect revolutionary moment where suddenly there was this clarifying moment like thing that happened that everybody saw, it was like, we wouldn't know what to do with it. We just no. don't know what to do with it. And, and I see it, I'm seeing it. Like I don't have to wait until tomorrow. Like I'm seeing it right now. And I feel like everybody's just not everybody. I shouldn't say everybody. Cause a lot of people are angry just like me. And we're all like doing our best to help other people or to plan or to help our family, you know, like, I'm literally like out of, I'm running out of ideas. I've done so much stuff. And like you, at some point you have to say, okay, well, like, how do I put this? Like it's, I guess I'm, I'm saying it's very isolating and scary because it feels like no one's ready. And this is the moment. And now the hard part is articulating how to address this moment adequately so that you can turn something like a pandemic around um, but at the same time, it's like, even on a basic level, like worker protections, right? We, how did we get sick leave in the past? How, like, what's the point of having sick leave if no one's allowed to use it? You know what I'm saying? So like, mm -hmm. why do we have that as an option in most jobs? And yet people don't feel the right to apply it to themselves. They cannot, like, what's the point of having sick days if we can't take them, you know, um, and why is the government and especially even where, why are unions not pushing for that? You know what I'm saying? Why are people not pushing for worker protections during a fucking global pandemic that's ongoing and killing thousands of people a week? Like where, what is happening? Like, yeah, ah, and what seems you know? is usually like the, the explanation as much as it can be is, well, the they're seeking profit, but it's like, yeah. in, in this case, they're not even effectively doing that. They're, they're chasing they're chasing profit by sacrificing people, but all they're getting is uh, still down uh, a downing or a reduction in profit and sick and dying employees. And so right. like, it, it's not effective. And I think part of it is because one of the aspects of it is uh, what's profitable for a 60 year old CEO for the, the rest of his life may not be beneficial for society for uh, the society that a 20 year old is going to grow old in mm -hmm. or like ideally hopefully be able to grow old in. and so like their motives and their their uh uh what's the word i'm looking for incentives are very different like and so like and that's that's a fundamental problem of capitalism that is unreal like that you can't resolve with regulations and rules like mm -hmm. it's just a fundamental aspect of when society is so overwhelmingly uh, controlled by people with power and money and to get that power and money takes time you're going to end up with a society that is overly tilted towards uh caring for a very small subset mm. of uh, people and then you're talking about wealthy elderly people because obviously we don't care for poor elderly people and we don't care for like uh, tons of people <laughs> like, yeah. we don't even care for the people that we send to fight imperialist wars and come back damaged we don't even take care of them no. <laughs> And as I said, you know, like evolutionarily speaking, I, I used to think like, okay, well, uh, all right, we're, we're, we're going to protect ourselves. Right. 
like on a, on a basic level, you think, okay, protect self, protect family. Right. Um, and often people say things like, well, I want my kids to have a better life than I had or whatever. And like, I'm a mama bear and this and that, blah, blah. Like it's all BS when it comes to COVID. Um, but <laughs> it, it's weird to me, right? Because it seems what I see people doing right now and like the fact that so many people are just not fighting at all, like the supposed people who are radicals are like whatever about this, it seems. But then also even the rich people who are whatever about this, it's weird to me. Like, I don't, I don't understand, like maybe because I'm a new mom or something, but like my, I feel like my literal job is to protect my child. Like that's my job. I, I, I will be run ragged and tired and like, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't eaten in like however many hours starving to death and I'm over there making my child's food. Right. Like this is how you think as a parent, if you love your child, usually you're like self-sacrificial in a lot of ways. And that's not to say that that's exactly healthy, but generally speaking, we put our children first. And what I'm seeing right now is like a lot of incredibly selfish and like harmful treatment of children um, and of elderly people and of people that we supposedly pretend to care about, um, even if it's our own, which is like so weird to me because this seems anti it seems like against evo- like basic evolutionary principles. And I understand what you're saying with regard to like old, el- like elderly rich people are protecting themselves, I guess, but like not even, like you look at Congress, you look at the Senate and like, those are all old rich people, <laughs> like a lot of them are old rich people. They're not masking anywhere. Like maybe they have something we don't know about. That's what I keep thinking. Like maybe they just have some sort of medication or something we don't know about. They definitely had access to Paxlovid earlier than the rest of the population, for example. But, you know, I'm just like, there's not a cure for this yet to the best of my knowledge. So like, what are y'all doing? How are they doing this? And, and, and still alive and like not falling down from, exhaustion or fatigue or whatever else all the time every like how are we not seeing people just like die of heart attacks on the senate floor knowing what we know about covid it's kind of strange you know um but i i, I just find i just yeah, find that explanation, yeah. or, no i'm sorry say, the best, ex, best explanation i could come up with is just that they're uh you're falling into old patterns of how to recapture what they feel they're losing and to a degree they are some of them anyway, because some people like Bezos and a handful of others have gotten extraordinary, even more wealthy over the time period. And some of that has gone away, as we saw with Elon Musk and Tesla, where, right. you know, billions and of Twitter. dollars are, are like <laughs> are captured and then lost. And like, so like it's a bizarre thing that more a fortune that would that a, a million people would struggle to spend over like over a decade is like just gained and lost by a single person over a, a bad month or two like that's, that's right just, it's wild and then all the other scandals and schemes that we got going on like at uh, the last year like a trillion dollars of wealth has been just evaporated <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. all the wealth that millennials are like uh, that the millennials and gen z has created a, a, a great swath of it just disappeared over basically overnight right and it's wild and so like uh, to the point about the whether elderly powerful rich powerful people are protecting themselves just that like they're in the old habits of you know if i if i want my business to make more money i gotta make sure my employees are showing up to work Mm -hmm. it's like even though that puts them in more danger than having and costs them and is less effective for generating profit than just having a system that utilizes 
work from home in an effective way for their industry. Like right. they'd rather stick with the ways that they're used to and that have worked in the past than do what even makes sense from a capitalist perspective today. Like so they're not even able to make those types of adjustments. That's that's the best I've come up with for an explanation besides the idea that they just have something we don't have access to. Right. Like in, in for me, I just immediately started thinking of thinking of waterfalls by TLC. You know, like don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick what is it? <laughs> Stick to the rivers and the lakes that, lakes you, that used you used to. to. I know <laughs> that you're gonna have it your way or nothing, nothing at all. See, it applies. <laughs> um yes the theme the theme for today is utter silliness because the world is ending and i'm just trying to cope through dad humor i guess (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i i actually i i do sing well that was like my joke singing voice um so i apologize to everyone i just put through that and tortured with my joke rendition of waterfalls but yeah i i do think that i think you're right and i think that that you know, it reminds some of what you said just now reminds me of something too that William Richardson said. Um, and shout out to William Richardson. Some of you might remember we spoke to him like many years ago um, about his work on colonialism and stuff. Uh, so I can actually I'll include his his discussion that we had that that may be worth revisiting um, in the show notes. But uh, he mentioned, you know, in and in we were talking, and he was just like, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff when it comes to the pandemic, like many of us are trying to figure out what the end game is, right? We're like, what is happening? Like, is it, do they have something that we don't, or is it like a depopulation effort or like what, what's happening? Like, why is no one doing anything? A lot of us are asking that question. And to that, he said, you know, ultimately we often assign a level of intelligence to wealthy people because just culturally we've been taught that to get rich, you have to be smart. Right. And he Mm -hmm. was like, you know what? at the end of the day, these people are not smart. And, you know, we have to remind ourselves of that. And he did, he brought up like Elon Musk and his losing all that money and stuff. And he was just like, you know, just because they're rich doesn't mean they're smart. Doesn't mean they have a plan. Doesn't even, even on the nefarious end, right? Like we know that they're benefiting from, from very um, negative behaviors and things like that and, and things that are hurting us and harmful. But at the end of the day, they don't always have a, a clearly outlined plan. And it also makes me think about, you know, what you and I had spoke about when we read Colonizer and the Colonized, like you can go listen to those episodes as well. I'll put those in the show notes also. Um, But one of the things that Memi talks about is the fact that like a lot of the colonizers, despite presenting themselves as kind of the know-it-alls and the, the absolute intellectuals of this whole operation, are failures. You know, a lot of these people are people who couldn't make it in their homelands. And so they went abroad trying to, you know, like do stuff somewhere else and try to reinvent themselves, but they don't know what they're doing half the time. And and then they're the ones who are put in charge. Um, I'm not a loser at this new school. It's like, right. (laughs) Like you were the problem. (laughs) Exactly. And that's why it used to make me nuts when people would like, they didn't want to call Donald Trump a fascist because they were like, oh, he's too stupid to be a fascist. And I'm like, what does that mean? Do you think that like, did you think that Hitler was like a Nobel, like not Nobel prize winner, obviously, but like a, you know, you you think he's like a, like a, an Oxford scholar or something like, what do you, what do you think? Do you think that fascism has to have some sort of high intellectual component? Is that what you think? Is that the only way to define fascism? Like, how many fascist movements do you know that were 
done by, you know, like astrophysicists or something. Like, no, it's about a feeling and it's about a feeling of hatred and ideology that's combined with capital. And at the end of the day, a lot of what we're seeing, and I think it is, you know, I think it's just like kind of the icing on the cake for the already pre-existing fascism in this country and around the world that's growing. But to look at the pandemic as anything other than just like a, a, a like a, I don't know, a, a, an element of that is a mistake, I think. And I agree with William, because I think part of, part of myself, like part of my thinking, I was also trying to kind of fit intentionality in where perhaps there isn't any, because I'm also still working through like old ideas and that are, that are like conditioned ideas, not that I'm intentionally holding, but like ideas about, oh, people in power have, uh, have gotten there because they're smart or people in power have gotten there because they're, you know, they're trained for it or they're, they're, this kind of technocratic idea, right? Where they're the experts and experts always have a plan, right? But what I'm realizing is like the experts <laughs> don't have a flipping plan and 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 that's for the worst for all of us, right? Like I, I somewhat wish they did have a plan, even if it were bad, because then we could fight against it more, more clearly, you know, easily. Um, but right now we're just, we're just fighting fog and it's, it's very, it's very confusing. And, and I think that's, that's what's scary going back to what we were talking about. I think that's why people aren't ready because it's like an uncertain enemy. You know what I'm saying? The enemy is ourselves, which is also scary. And I don't think people want to address, but like if you're walking around without a mask and you know that you can get COVID and spread COVID, if you're not masking, you are technically my enemy. And, but uh, you're not my only enemy, right? Like I understand the larger institutional enemy as well. I'm not saying that like everybody walking around a mask is like, like, you know, Darth Vader or something. Although he does wear a mask. Um, <laughs> but my point is, I wish everyone were like Darth Vader. Um, but my point is that like, I think that that there's a kind of trickle down, um, like a trickling down of of the enemy, right? And we're being taught to fight one another and in that fog of fighting one another, we're not able to cohesively come up with a plan to fight the much bigger problem that's like a top-down issue. Um, and we don't we don't have the tools to like combat this. Like, how do you combat the CDC, right? Um, how do you combat the federal government's poor COVID response? How do you how do you fight for uh better sick pay or sick days when you're all sick, right? How does that work? Like, how do we do that? And I think in that confusion and in those moments of uncertainty, that makes people less able and it properly equipped to come together and actually do something. It's 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 like it, it kind of paralyzes us in that way. And I think people are un I think I think people are like, again, like they're just in the fog. And and that's what's scary to me because it's it's not having a defined enough enemy that makes people more susceptible to indifference and denial. And so what scares me is that like, as fascism like ramps up more and more and more, and now it does have this eugenics component by way of the pandemic. Um, what are we doing about it? And the answer is jack shit. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't know. It, it is demoralizing to see that in the face of all of this that the left has had, like, I feel like 
I don't know. I don't want to give a specific peak or whatever, but I feel like things were definitely growing on the left through the Bernie Sanders first mm-hmm. run through 2016. Mm-hmm. I, there was definitely like a, a lull after that and then uh, some sort of pickup in 2020, but 2020 Bernie run was demonstrably like different than 2016 mm-hmm. because the main thing that uh, appealed for Bernie to the people that either had politics to the left of him or uh, just uh, hadn't or wasn't like had, weren't on board with him already was his consistency and integrity, like his ability to say what he meant and to stick with it over time. And in the four year interim between those two runs, he had already uh, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Just given in to uh, Democrats on too many aspects to Mm -hmm. maintain that credibility, particularly with the people to his left. Uh, Mm -hmm. He probably still maintains most of that credibility with folks that like became leftist as a result of Bernie Sanders or like, you right. know, like that was the the left boundary of their politics with Bernie Sanders. He probably still has credibility with them and is even if not possibly even more endeared because of his willingness to compromise or whatever you want to call it with uh, Democrats. But def- and like there was definitely a large spike following the murder of George Floyd where mm-hmm. it looked like, hey, this could actually be a moment like this. This We could have some serious things, we, like some serious change could happen. And then that was co-opted and captured crushed. by the Democratic movement and crushed. Yeah. And, like, it was, and we saw some streets get painted, some get renamed, <laughs> some statues go up, and the cops are getting bigger paychecks to mm-hmm. like make them like training is not the problem right yeah they don't need any more training (laughs) there's an institutional fundamental systematic problem of how policing functions period doesn't matter you could have the you could have I almost said a bunch of priests, but that's probably not. (laughs) (laughs) You can have the best people you can imagine, like uh, like being cops, and it's still going to have these same problems because the problems aren't at the individual level; they're at the systemic and institutional level, and 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 beyond that, at the fundamental level of how capitalism need what capitalism needs in order to function. Like Mm -hmm. you just like as long as we're in a capitalist system, the police system is always going to be uh, catastrophic. Like you can't. Like you can't have a good police system within the capitalist system. You have less detrimental ones like you see in like social democracies in Northern Europe, but you're not going to actually have a, like, you can't, you you just can't like, and that's one of the things that I find so frustrating is even, and I see this on the left as well, like uh, to meaning to the left of Democrats of people that just don't want to let go of capitalism. They just can't let go. Like it's it's an addiction, as you said, (laughs) like fix it, you know, (laughs) you know, try to mitigate the damage it causes is like, even if that's your position, you have to at least first recognize that these problems are a result of the system at play. Like, and that with within that system, you are not going to resolve those problems, period. Mm-hmm. Like, instead, they always just lean back onto, oh, well, those are human nature problems. It's like, that's bunk, outdated science. Like, that's an not, inadequate, that's, an inadequate yeah. response. Yeah. That's phrenology. Like, <laughs> that is not what, like, that's not what the modern social science is saying, and not just the liberal communists. So, like, no, it's like increasingly we're finding that scientists outside of the field of politics are arriving at a conclusion. And, like, it's weird when you read it because you can see them arriving at this conclusion that the core problem is capitalism itself, but realizing that they can't actually articulate that in their paper or won't get published or won't get cited and so on and so forth. So they just dance around it. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it, you see it in, in, and I've been noticing it increasingly in a variety of different sciences where they're like, well, why is it like this? And then when they investigate, they're like, oh, it's because we have profit motive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it doesn't make sense in any other context period at all like the only way it can make sense is if you accept the propaganda of uh you know adam smith's capitalism of in the concept of homo economicus and people the basically everybody being selfish the invisible hand will mold that into being beneficial for everyone it's like mm-hmm. don't believe that which has obviously been like it's obviously garbage but it's like if you don't believe that then like most of the things that are happening in this country just don't make sense. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words most of the time, just assessing things on my own. But certainly when I talk to other people, I've noticed that like we're, a lot of us are reaching the same conclusions, you know, like what you just laid out basically. And I think also like the way you outlined it is, is fair. And I agree in the sense that there, at least in the U S right, there's been, there has been a lull. There has been what seems like a standstill. And what I have noticed in particular is that a lot of people who were part of the Bernie movement or like very proud, they kind of rose to prominence during the Bernie stuff um, in the U.S. have since become either hardcore liberals again or like they're they're using leftism as a way to kind of sheepdog people to the right which I know sounds counter, like doesn't make sense, but that's what I'm witnessing, right? So people who are talking about socialism, but they have a spin on it that kind of sounds a lot like uh, not so, not like raw socialism, but like something else to me. It sounds more like fascism. Um, it's a very and, clever rhetorical technique used by li- or libertarians to like, yeah. folks like, <laughs> hey, I'm with you on these social issues. And by the way, did you know, like, right. capitalism rules? Exactly. <laughs> and there's, yeah, there's, there's also like a lot of, I feel like is, you know, now that you mentioned it, like there's also a lot of libertarianism sneaking into things um, that, I don't know, I wasn't necessarily expecting. Like I figured, I figured some people would just like, either go farther left like I, I and I did see a lot of that like I did see a lot of people who became like communists or socialists in like an a, like a regular socialism way not in like a Bernie socialist way like a light socialism but actually became socialist um and I think I expected that and then I expected some people to just like go back to liberalism because they felt like the Bernie stuff failed and they're not going to try again, but I wasn't expecting the fash stuff. Um, and I think the reason that I, I wasn't expecting it to be as bad is because at the earlier stages of it, I knew that there were some grifters and I called them out. I was very transparent about that, but some people were like, I didn't exactly love, but I wasn't expecting them to go as far to the right as they did, or I didn't expect them to try to sneak in so much far right stuff over time. Like I, as much as this gonna is probably gonna get me in trouble, but like Bashkar Sankara is one person that comes to mind, and I'm not saying he's a fascist, but he's definitely been an apologist for them, and he's definitely said some things where I was like, "Yo, that's not socialist at all." Like you just sound like you're a, you know, like you're just. Like and and Jacobin in general has has gone in some directions that I feel like have been really scary during the pandemic and kind of seem to be signaling uh, to the right and and doing some dog whistle drops that make me deeply uncomfortable. Um, and still a for- desperation on the left to appeal to right 
wingers mm-hmm. instead of just organizing the people that already agree with them. Exactly. And not even that agree with them, but that are like politically indifferent or who are disenfranchised. Like that's the main thing. I mean, you should work, you should be working with poor people, period, period. Like, yeah. and, and not like the point shouldn't be let's go get some right-wingers on our side because what they're doing to do that is not converting the right-wingers. They're going and speaking their language to them and then trying to insert some stuff about socialism in it. And that's not how you convert people. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't, so you you can't say like, look at those trans people, they're ruining schools and and girls sports and all this stuff, but Hey, do you want some universal health care? Like that's not, that's that's not good because trans people make up this movement. You know what I'm saying? Like trans people are disproportionately affected by poverty and are and just it, like they are disproportionately poor because of the way the society operates and yet you're going to throw them under the bus so you can go get some nazis on your side like do you hear yourself so yeah, that kind of stuff has been dangerous i was just gonna say that like and then when or sorry i lost my train of thought it'll come back to me momentarily are you sure i'm sorry oh yeah no uh we were talking about like people on the left using fascist language to appeal to fascists and then dropping like trying to drop hints about socialism but then throwing people who are marginalized and disenfranchised that they should be supporting under the bus oh yeah okay well one the the popularity of open fascism has been surprising like uh, obviously i felt like the u.s already had the see like fascism seething underneath it and mm-hmm. sometimes overtly but like it's it's been surprising just how popular just overt fascism has been it i guess it harkens back to when like 50 percent of republicans said that they wanted to uh like kick all muslims out of the country essentially mm-hmm. like completely disregarding freedom of religion uh but the other aspect was that like you mentioned the whole like oh you know trans people are ruining the, uh, our schools but don't you want free health care or you want health care right. right and it's like it's like and when those people go to the bargaining table to to hash out the details of this universal health care guess what's on the cutting block right trans trans health rights like, exactly exactly and so and it happens it's happened every time it, like it happens over and over like that's one of the frustrating parts is that to the degree that they have a, the this is operating under a plan is that they use these same things over and over habitually like even possibly and probably not even consciously sometimes mm-hmm. to, to do this whether it's you know dividing and conquer or it it's uh this it's just it's so consistent and like it's very frustrating that we don't seem to have a uh, formulaic or like uh, a reliable response to it and that to whatever degree that does exist it's not nearly as popular as open fash right and I, I yeah and I don't it is like you said it's that cycle doing this over and over again is a, is really exhausting um not so exhausting that I'm ready to completely abandon leftism like that's not what I'm saying like I'm not interested in abandoning socialist principles or anything like that because to me they're fundamental um but I think for some people it does get tiring to the point that they just they say you know what I'm just going to go back to my my little you know call to everybody go 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 out and vote and that's it you know, and some of us just don't have time to do as much as we were doing in the past. And so then it becomes a matter also of just like how much effort and energy can you continue to exert um, to only be crushed or to only be co-opted or to only be told that your issue doesn't matter because we got to go appeal to some right-wingers, you know, like it's, and, and Democrats do that too. I'm not just saying the leftists 
people do this, but like regular Democrats continue to do that as well. How many times have we seen them placate the right, you know? Um, so we don't really have any, um, at least at the institutional level, but even the, like I would say, you know, kind of like a sub-institutional level, we don't really have any leadership and we don't have any um, people that we can look to easily and say like, that's the next person who's going to push for change. And I think not, I think that that sort of vacuum that's been left for a lot of people has meant, mm, you know, going in a direction where they know they can make money. Right. I think, I think that's, mm -hmm. a, that's the thing, you know, they want to have financial security going forward or they want to be, you know, and I should go back and say that like Sankata is no longer over Jacobin. He works for the nation now. He's like the president of the nation, which in and of itself has done and said some stuff that's like not exactly leftist on multiple levels as well. Um, but I think that there, there's a risk at, um, there's a risk with that, that leadership vacuum. And I'm not just saying Bernie, I'm saying like a lot of leftist leaders who have kind of gone into the shadows. They're not as vocal anymore. They're not doing anything. And I feel like that kind of populist leftism that was surging for a moment has been dampened. And I worry about what's going to come in its wake, um, especially under the pandemic conditions, because those have limited. And clearly, as I've mentioned already, that that has also like shown the kind of inability of the left to respond adequately to things right now. Um, and also to respond to issues within its own ranks, like why are leftists being indifferent to, to ableism? You know what I'm saying? Like, why are they indifferent to the needs of disabled or chronically ill people? or black people, for example, and, and just to be clear, like there's overlap in these groups that I'm mentioning, right? But why are they so willing to throw trans people under the bus or poor black people being targeted by police under the bus or whatever? It's confusing to someone who says, but look, like, look at the books, guys, look at the stuff that we read and we talk about all the time, right? How are you on the one hand, one day you're reading Marx or like Angela Davis or something. And then the next minute you're talking about I don't, I don't really like, I'm, I'm going to throw this group under the bus so that I can appeal to the right. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I think, I, I mean, obviously people are hypocrites, right? That part makes sense. But I think as a, on a movement level, it's confusing and it's frustrating. And you and I have talked about this, about this ad nauseum, because like when we read stuff, um, you know, in the past, um, and some books that we've discussed and whatnot. And we've seen how these movements cycle in and out because there are people who are self-interested and because at the end of the day, capitalism is a really powerful system and the institutions that exist to support it are going to do whatever they need to, to survive. And that part of that process means like destroying the movements that criticize it and want to destroy it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. it's functioning as intended, basically. Yeah, no, I think you're you're very correct about the, the leadership vacuum on the left and how the risks and dangers and problems that that poses. And I think obviously uh, we like it's leaderships of radical movement is also a dangerous place to be. Like, uh, the U.S. has systemically and meticulously either destroyed the lives or literally killed the people 
that have rose up in these situations and took in leadership positions historically speaking and so like and even more contemporarily speaking as far as you know people leaders of ferguson mysteriously dying and other movements around that time right. and all following that died under mysterious or uh controversial circumstances and stuff and uh like one of the things that kind of that crystallized this for me and uh, I'll try to be as careful as I can when I say this so that I don't get uh, misunderstood but that like I don't know if you've caught any of the news about the, the guy Andrew Tate is that yeah you know okay yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and so uh essentially like the left doesn't have an Andrew Tate not in the all the negative aspects of what he brings but and not to make him seem as though he's a positive person in any in, in any meaningful way but mm-hmm. that he rep he what he's good at is presenting a message of what he wants the people to he wants people to believe and to encourage them and to get them to do that now i'm not saying that we need to mimic his techniques or his right. strategies <laughs> or anything right or and definitely not any of his actual recommendations but that the left needs somebody who can articulate and uh, capture the imagination the and like so that people can see themselves in a future built by the leftism that they're practicing you know and what we I mean? need the message too like we need an easily uh conveyable and digestible message and i think that there's still there's a lack of that in a lot of ways on the left in the u.s right now not in a reductive way to dilute or right, to right. disembody the message but in a way that any working class person can pick up what you're talking about in a couple sentences without having right. to just have clarity. Whole... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and be able to connect it to their life and why it matters to them. And those things, like it's about, it's a, it, that aspect is not about sloganeering, you right. know, for the sake of like capitalism of selling people something that they don't want. It's about creating, like you said, concise clarity, those types of things. And that, that's in, like, so that's, I feel like that is, definitely missing and i feel like stokely carmichael or kwame tori was was that in a lot of ways when i go back and watch his speeches like he was that kind of bombastic and like he had a way to capture your attention and to get you invested in the future he was painting Mm -hmm. in a way that the left is sorely lacking now and i mean like i said you can't dismiss or disregard the fact that there are institutional systemic uh powers operating against somebody like that from rising and also co-opting any ones that do start to look like they're doing that but also that it does seem as though that there is uh just a dearth and like regardless of the reason it's a problem that has to be addressed mm-hmm. i agree 100 percent. and i you know i i have to just say obviously to anyone who's like interested in international policy or some our listeners who are like listening from other parts of the world like my apologies that we've been so U.S. centric. Obviously, there are leftists and leftist movements around the world that do have, you know, I would say like more def- defined leaders and more defined messages and that are, I don't want to say thriving because they're certainly under threat, um, but we do see them coming up in the ranks again. We look at, and again, not a, not a, no one is perfect. I just want to clarify that. Like I'm not, anyone that I present during this discussion is not perfect because we're not talking about gods. We're talking about human beings, right? We're talking about human beings who are operating in a capitalist system and trying to survive in that capitalist system who are uh, deeply flawed and making mistakes. Um, But 
I do think that like, if you look to Latin America, there are lots of movements afoot, um, some that have been electoral and some otherwise that are very progressive or, you know, like so socialist, let's just call it what it is. Um, but they too are facing really serious challenges and whether that's co-opting or like literal challenges in terms of like attempted coups, like what's going on in Brazil or what just happened in Brazil, but is, I would argue, an ongoing process, not something that just can be distilled into January 8th. Um, and to be clear, I'm going to discuss that with another guest in the future. So be on the lookout for that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, if we look elsewhere and we learn from, as you already mentioned, learn from past figures, but also look beyond the, the borders of the U.S. and learn from current day figures in other places, you know, there and, and even I would argue perhaps within the U.S., but the people that we might be ignoring or that might not be getting um, public support because they come from a marginalized background or something. You know what I'm saying? Like Stokely Carmichael as a black man, and not only that, but like a black immigrant is going to be a different kind of figure perhaps for you and me as he would be to like a larger white audience in the U.S. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So I think sometimes there are plenty of people who have great messages and who are clear and who are important and who did a lot of amazing things or are continuing to do a lot of amazing things that people just ignore because they don't fit into the idea that has been constructed of what a quote unquote leader looks like. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you could have a black candidate or a Latina candidate or something and a, and a white candidate a white male candidate, and they're all saying the same thing and more people are going to vote for the white male candidate, right? Just by virtue mm -hmm. of what, again, what we've been taught to believe means is like how leadership is defined, even on the left, because the left is also susceptible to these old school Eurocentric sexist notions of what leadership means. Um, and so I think there's, there's, there is room for us to learn, but I think people need to be more cognizant of their biases and what's limiting us from seeing some of that, um, some of that clarity, maybe, or messages, or things like that, that that we could learn from, um, and why that is. And that's not that's not a diss at you, by the way. I'm talking about just like the general American public, but also the American left, um, U.S. American left, to be even more clear, uh, where we have some some drawbacks and things that that need to be worked out before we move forward, or that need to certainly be worked out as we're moving forward. Perhaps I should say. Um, on that note that very cheery, cheery, happy note. Um, <laughs> I know that I, I don't have more, much more to say, but I think this is a discussion that like is ongoing for you and me, right? Like it's something that we often come back to. Um, and I think for this year in particular, perhaps is something that we should continue as a theme, you know, like what, what is the message um, and how can we make that clear? And what are some of the things that we're reading or people that we're listening to or like guests that we're talking to um, histories that we're learning about that perhaps imparted a message that, that might be obscured for whatever reason. And how can we bring that to light through the podcast and through our own everyday actions? Um, because I, I think I really fear that, that a lot of stuff is, getting buried and will continue to get buried if we don't do something to kind of like bring it to the light, you know, as, as a collective. So that's my last and, thought. <laughs> yeah. Just on the leadership vacuum, I think one aspect of it is that the society that we live in doesn't, it doesn't raise people to prominence that are uh, embracing socialist values. So it's like, it's, right. it's hard to 
become successful enough to reach a level of leadership without undermining the very things that you're claiming to carry to leadership. And so like, it's, it's very difficult. Like whoever is going to end up stepping up and ideally it would be multiple people not a singular person for multiple reasons. There's all there's besides the, the counter-revolutionary aspects of it, there are other reasons that socialism strives for leaderless movements in general, or like, tries to avoid like leadership hierarchies generally and so like whoever does end up taking on that role and or, and whoever they are is going to have to be like have their arm twisted into it like they're mm -hmm. anybody that's going to be seeking it out isn't going to be what we need no it's gonna, have to, <laughs> it, it's gonna be it's gonna need to be somebody who is raised through that by nature of the effectiveness of their work and the like and people being like, hey, you have too many good ideas for us to let you sit on the sidelines. You have to take a more prominent role in this. And we need you to do that. Like, that's how it's going to have to happen. Right. Like, like I said, the, who, if they're seeking it, they're not going to have they're not going to have what they need, even if they have the best intentions. It's like the I mean, we've we've talked about this and we talked about this a little bit with our fairy episode, too. But like the organic intellectual that Gramsci talks about. Like it has to be someone from the community. It has to be someone who understands the problems. It has to be someone who, who is really deeply connected with what's going on, and not just again like this kind of top-down, traditional yeah. process. Just, and that's just mutually exclusive from mm -hmm. being successful. What's deemed as successful in this country. So it's like, the well, leadership will have to come from someone that is not considered successful within the paradigm of cap U.S. capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think that's well, a really important point and a good place to stop um <laughs> but i want you to hold that thought richard because i feel like mm -hmm. this this idea is something like i said that we should explore for the rest of the year to be honest um yeah as i'm saying it i'm thinking it's like i have work to do <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right like i gotta go make that money um i'm just kidding but anyway yes this is great thank you so much for like talking to me again we've been you and i have not had a chance to talk in months yeah. um it's so it's been long. really nice huh very happy i said far too long very happy to be able to have share this time with you yes thank you so much richard and thank you all for listening be safe out there as i said before in the previous podcast make sure that you're if you're indoors that you're wearing a kn95 a kf94 or an n95 or if you're outdoors and you're in close proximity to others because we have to do our best to limit the spread and the contraction of the coronavirus, aka COVID-19, our little friend that's been with us for several years now. We're entering year four of the COVID pandemic, and I, I would like to see it slow down, but it just keeps speeding up. So let's do our parts to kind of limit the spread on a community level. Um, and if you all have any questions about where to get masks, or if you need access to masks, or if testing, anything like that, please feel free to contact me either through the Left POC page or through my personal Twitter page, which is at MuseWendy. Um, and as always, you can see and learn more about the Left Pocket Project podcast by going to at Left POC on any of your social media faves, except for Instagram. We're not on Instagram yet because I don't take that many pictures. Um, <laughs> but maybe one day, maybe one day we'll have a Left POC Instagram page. But um, yeah, y'all stay safe. Thank you so much for listening and have a good one. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. 
As per usual, you can check us out by searching for Simply Left POC on any of the social media faves and of course wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely take a stop over at patreon.com slash left POC to support the podcast financially. But know of course that all content on the Patreon is always free. Thanks so much and have a good